All right, everybody clicked on go, right? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back to the Missions Uncovered podcast with me, Dominic, and your other hosts, Nee and Michael. This week, we thought it'd be a good idea to review some released Common App essays slash supplement essays from Johns Hopkins. The Missions Committee thought that these were especially good essays, and they released them to kind of model other students' essays after them, and we wanted to share them with you. The way it'll work is one of us will read the essay and then guide the discussion with the other two of why we think these essays worked. While these are Common App or specific Johns Hopkins essays, the principles that we're going to discuss are fully applicable for any, for any essay you need to write, including supplements and for scholarships. Hopefully you can get some good ideas for your own essays and or gain a better understanding of what makes up a good college essay. You can follow along with us with the link in the show notes at admissionsuncovered.com or just listen to us read them to you, especially with Michael's angelic voice. (laughs) Speaking of my angelic voice, I have a special announcement that we gave on last week's podcast. We are going to be doing a special episode in the near future where we review your college essays and your college supplements. Just send the essays you want us to review over to admissions.uncovered at gmail.com. We won't read them aloud on the podcast, but we will give a general idea of what the, what the essay is about, and we'll give you some feedback on the air. We would like the prompt, the school it's for, your first name, and the city and state you're from. Be sure to send over your essays over to admissions.uncovered at gmail.com, and we'll review it on an episode coming very, very soon. All right, let's get started. The first essay I'm going to read is Time to Spin the Wheel by Romilla. For as long as I can remember, one of my favorite pastimes has been manipulating those tricky permutations of 26 letters to fill in that signature, bright green gridded board of Wheel of Fortune. Every evening at precisely 6.30pm, my family and I unfailingly gather in our living room, in anticipation of Pat Sajak's cheerful announcement, it's time to spin the wheel, and the game is afoot, our banter punctuated by the potential of either big rewards or even bigger bankruptcies. She has to know that word, my goodness, why is she buying a vowel? While a game like Wheel of Fortune is full of financial pitfalls, I wasn't ever much interested in the money, or new cars to be won. I found myself drawn to the letters and playful application of the English language, the intricate units of language. For instance, phrases like I love you, whose incredible emotion is quantized by a mere set of eight letters, never cease to amaze me. Whether it's the definite pang of a simple I am or an existential crisis posed by am I, I recognized at a young age how letters and their order impact language. Spelling bees were always my forte. I've always been able to visualize words and then verbally spring, sp- string individual consonants and vowels together. I may not have known the meaning of every word I spelled. I knew that soliloquy always pushed my buttons, that the Q-U-Y ending was so bizarre yet memorable. And in Talia, with its silent G, just rolled off the tongue like cultured butter. Eventually, letters assembled in greater and more complex words. I was an avid reader early on, devouring book after book. From the Magic Treehouse series to the Too Real 1984, the distressing The Bell Jar, and Tagore's quaint short stories, I accumulated an ocean of new words. Some real. Epitome. Effervescence. Apricity and some fully fictitious, double plus good, and collected all of my favorites in a little journal, my panoply of words. Add the fact that I was raised in a Bengali household and studied Spanish in high school for four years, and I was able to add other exotic words, Sinfin, Xanahoria, Katakutu, and Chiranto, soon took their rightful places alongside my English favorites. 
And yet during this time of vocabulary enrichment, I never thought that honors English and biology had much in common. Imagine my surprise one night as a freshman as I was nonchalantly flipping through a scientific textbook. I came upon fascinating terms, adiabatic, axiom, cotyledon, phalanges, and I couldn't help but wonder why these non-literary, seemingly random words were drawing me in. These words had sharp syllables, were challenging to enunciate, and didn't possess any particular abstract meaning. I was flummoxed, but curious. I kept reading. Air in the engine quickly compressing. Incontestable mathematical truth. Fledging leaf in an angiosperm. Ossified bones of fingers and toes. And then it hit me. For all my interest in STEM classes, I never fully embraced the beauty of technical language, that words have the power to simultaneously communicate infinite ideas and sensations and intricate relationships and complex processes. Perhaps that's why my love of words has led me to a calling in science, an opportunity to better understand the parts that allow the world to function. At day's end, it's language that is perhaps the most important tool in scientific education, enabling us all to communicate new findings in a comprehensible manner, whether it be focused on minute atoms or vast galaxies. It's equal parts humbling and enthralling to think that I, Romilla, might still have something to add to that scientific glossary, a little permutation of my own that may transcend some aspect of human understanding. Who knows? But I'm definitely game to give the wheel a spin, Pat, and see where it takes me. Well, what I really like about it is that it's a very, I think, sensible story. It moves from beginning to end. It moves from a pastime and moves to the first words she learned. I love you. And then the spelling bee. And then she became a reader. And even the sentence, the paragraph talking about the book she read seems to move from when she read it first to when she read it last. So I think... What I really like about it is that everything fits under the overarching narrative that she's using, the overarching story that she's using. Yeah, for me, first off, Magic Treehouse series was the stuff. So definitely point true. true. <laughs> also, I have the entire series, actually. I do, too. It was the stuff, man. I gotta say. Uh, beyond that, I think there is something special to an essay where it teaches the reader something they're constantly introducing words in this essay and most people probably don't know what a lot of the strange words that they're talking about are so either it makes you wonder what it is or possibly look it up so you're definitely engaging with the essay and then i think it also shows their broader range of involvement in their life it's not super specified on one thing and it doesn't give me the impression that they only do one thing with their life and that they might be possibly too spiked. Uh, it definitely shows that they're a social person with getting with their family, watching the TV show. And then also they're very interested in studies, looking up different words and kind of interested in STEM and then also words in general. So they have that contrast in what they're learning. And just overall, I think it was a good essay. One other thing that I really liked about the essay is I think a very specific thing, but I think something that is instructive. There's this paragraph where she kind of, she drops a lot of words throughout. And there's this paragraph, she actually drops names of books and names of series, right? Magic Tree House, 1984, The Bell Jar, and Tagore's Short Stories. Now, 
This sometimes could seem as just like she copy and pasted some famous book words. But if you look at the fully fictitious, so the, the example of a fully fictitious word she's learned or accumulated, she uses double plus good, which comes from 1984. And this is, I think, a small way that proves that she actually has read the book. Now, obviously, she also could have copy and pasted double plus good from like some Wikipedia article about <laughs> 1984. But I think at least what struck out to me is that this kind of seems to indicate and tell the admissions officer, no, she knows what she's talking about. And I think that's a very useful tip if you're ever going to name drop something, is to also have a little detail somewhere else in the essay that backs up that you've actually read that book. Also, uh, it's kind of similar to what Dominic said, how she kind of shows that she's a well-rounded person wanting to pursue the sciences. Because in the beginning, it seems very um, uniquely and creatively combined those two interests. The entire essay seems very genuine, like she had a true passion. So that part of adding Spanish and also talking about her household um, growing up, uh, both personal and not just her listing a bunch of words and being like, oh, hey, look at all these words I know. And I think that tells a really good story. And one final thing the Johns Hopkins admission officers have done for the readers of these essays is not only providing them, but they also include a short little paragraph about comments that they have about the essays, what they think stuck out. We have not read the ones that are not our essays, so we can also kind of see what we thought the essays did well versus what the admissions office thinks they did well. So, Nia, if you could read those for this essay. Yeah. So, the admissions committee writes... Ramilla writes about her interests in words, beginning with a simple family tradition. You see her passion for reading languages and biology, which highlights how words have the ability to fascinate and inspire new ideas across different subjects. The intersection of linguistics and science shows her interdisciplinary study can lead to new interests and discoveries. A curiosity about the world and the ability to find connections between disciplines are characteristics of a student who would thrive at Hopkins. So that brings up a really good point, which is that it is so clear after this essay what the rest of her application is, right? The rest of her application is explained by this essay. You know, it seems like she's going to have three main parts to her application. She's going to have a lot of language classes. She's going to have taken a lot of STEM classes. um, And she maybe does like a club about reading or something or like an English club or whatever. Well, this essay weaves all of those interests together. And that's something that we've talked about as something that your narrative needs to do. It needs to explain why you do all the things you do and how they interact. This essay does that really well, which makes it, I think, a perfect example of a good narrative-based essay, an essay with a point. I think that's going to be a common theme that we find throughout these essays. Someone who's curious, someone who's willing to study many subjects, tell a story about who you are, but kind of let the admissions committee be able to see who you would be at Hopkins. I think if you can do both of those things, then it would be a really good essay. I agree. I will then read the next essay and we'll... Do the same structure, I'll read it, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. And at the end, I'll read the admissions committee comments. This essay is titled, And On That Note, and it's written by Curtis. The sound was loud and discordant, like a hurricane, high notes and low notes, mixing together in an audible mess. It was as if a thousand booming foghorns were in a shouting match with sirens. Unlike me, this was a little abrasive and loud. I liked it. 
It was completely unexpected and extremely fun to play. Some instruments are built to make multiple notes, like a piano. A saxophone, on the other hand, doesn't play chords, but single notes through one vibrating reed. However, I discovered that you can play multiple notes simultaneously on the saxophone. While practicing a concert D-flat scale, I messed up a fingering for a low B-flat, and my instrument produced a strange noise with two notes. My band teacher got very excited and explained, Hey, you just played a polyphonic note. I like it when accidents lead to discovering new ideas. I like this polyphonic sound because it reminds me of myself. Many things at once. You assume one thing and get another. At school, I'm a course scholar in English, but I'm also able to amuse others when I come up with some wince-evoking puns. My math and science teachers expect me to go into engineering, but I'm more excited about making films. Discussing current events with my friends is fun, but I also like to share with them my secrets to cooking a good scotch egg. Even though my last name gives them a hint, the Asian students at our school don't believe that I'm half Japanese. Meanwhile, the non-Asians are surprised that I'm also part Welsh. I feel comfortable being unique or thinking differently. As a student ambassador, this enables me to help freshmen and others who are new to our school feel welcome and accepted. I help the new students know that it's okay to be themselves. There is added value in mixing things together. I realized this when my brother and I won an international Cavalier Science Foundation contest where we explained the math behind the Pixar movie up. Using stop-motion animation, we explored the plausibility and science behind lifting up home house with helium balloons i like offering a new view and expanding the way people see things in many of my videos i combine art with education i want to continue making films that not only entertain but also make you think a lot of people have a single passion that defines them or have a natural talent for something specific like my saxophone i am an instrument but i can play many notes at once i'm a scholar and a musician quiet but talkative, an athlete and a filmmaker, careful but spontaneous, a fan of Johnny Cash and Kill the Noise, hardworking but playful, a martial artist and a baker, one of a kind but an identical twin. Will polyphonic notes resonate in college? Yes. For instance, balancing a creative narrative with scientific facts will make a more believable story. I want to bring together different kinds of students, such as music, film, and English majors, to create more meaningful art. Understanding fellow students' perspectives, talents, and ideas are what build a great community. I'm looking forward to discovering my place in the world by combining different interests. Who I am doesn't always harmonize and may seem like nothing but noise to some. But what I play, no matter how discordant, can be beautiful. It's my own unique polyphonic note. So, what are your first reactions to Curtis's essay? First off, I think he did a really great job at tying in the beginning into the end. It kind of went off into other things that he did, for example, the science contest, but tying it back into that whole metaphor of him being a polyphonic note, I think that that really made the essay special. I think one thing that I really like about the essay is how much it uses parallelism, a kind of cadence that generates a building feeling. And I think we've talked about this before. Right, Sentences that have the same structure that are stacked right up next to each other. Oftentimes, these sentences are shorter, so it's even more rhythmic. And so I think there are two examples that I really liked. Uh, so there's this paragraph where he has a bunch of examples of how he is a contradiction, right? So I think it's the third paragraph. You assume one thing and get another. At school, I'm a course scholar in English, but I'm also able to amuse others. My science teacher expects me to go to engineering, but I'm more excited about making films, yada, yada, yada. The structure of this paragraph is that each sentence has the first clause as I like some stereotypical thing about myself, 
but I also like some unexpected thing about myself. And so just stacking these examples upon each other really, I think, creates the building feeling that, yeah, this is actually who he is, rather than just having all these, you know, different structures that kind of decrease the effect of the paragraph. There's also another paragraph that does a similar job, but kind of narrows it down, where he talks- One that's uh, a lot of people. Exactly, exactly. That isolates a very specific, that, that kind of takes that paragraph and makes it even more- deliberate and even and narrows it down to the even more essential aspects of him so like my saxophone i am an instrument but i can also play many notes at once i'm a scholar and a musician quiet but talking an athlete and a filmmaker careful but spontaneous and so if you notice just in those four sentences there's already a structure being created the first sentence in the set is uh, Two is two things he does. He's a scholar and a musician, and it uses the and conjunction. The next sentence is quiet but talkative. That but creates a contradiction. The next sentence in the new set is an athlete and a filmmaker. Two things he does with an and conjunction. After that, it's careful but spontaneous. There's a contradiction there. And this is a moment where I think the form contributes to the content. This is exactly what he's saying. He is both someone who has a coherent story about himself. You can be both a scholar and a musician, but also contradictions about him that are quiet but talkative. And I think to juxtapose those two ideas, to juxtapose these types of structures, really gets at the point he's making. And you know, you might say, like, I'm reading too much into it, I'm doing too much AP Lang stuff to it, and you know, I'm always very <laughs> sympathetic to those types of concerns. But, you know, that type of parallelism, I think does have a very visceral effect on the reader. Just like reading it out loud, I felt very, very compelled when I got to those sentences. Kind of expanding upon that, with that parallelism, he's able to do, I think it actually relates to the admissions committee's comment for the previous um, essay talking about the interdisciplinary aspects, like how the first student was between kind of more language and science in this essay, it's all kind of built on that idea between different, differing um, interests and like perspectives and different aspects that make um, the writer who he is. So I think that's it's very powerful in that he was able to portray a lot of that. And it didn't really get to the point where like, oh, so you're just like listing on and on and on because of the structure that Michael mentioned. I think it really drew me in with the very creative and smart way that he was able to do that. And also one thing about this essay, I think it was like towards the end, he emphasized how all of this, his diverse interests will be uh, used um, in college. So I think that's like one big thing because these essays are supposed to kind of tell them about who you are so they can imagine the student you'll be like within, in this case, like the Hopkins community. So I think in him saying that in the last two paragraphs, kind of, it really helps the admissions officer really get to know this person and be like, oh, yeah, we want this student at our college too. And one other thing I noticed about this is that the essay carries through it a very strong thematic device. And I think you notice this with a lot of the essays that are we're going to cover in this episode and the other episode we're going to do on this. But you see a... I mean, to put it more plainly, it's an extended metaphor, right? There's a metaphor at the top that extended throughout the essay, and that being the polyphonic note, right? 
There's a story about how he generated this polyphonic note with the saxophone. And then that is used and mentioned basically in every paragraph and not, you know, every other paragraph. And it also ends with a polyphonic note. And so that extended metaphor can really give a coherent feeling to the essay that you might not otherwise get, especially an essay like this, where there are a bunch of different examples that jump from example to example in the span of sentences. The reason why that works, the reason why it appears coherent is A, because of the parallelism, but B, also because it always links back to this extended metaphor of the polyphonic device. And Michael, do you want to close us off with the admissions committee comments? Yeah, sure. Okay, so the admissions committee read, Curtis compares himself to polyphonic sounds to convey how he is many things at once, musician, English scholar, filmmaker, and a baker, among others. We not only get a good picture of his personality through his writing, but also what kind of student Curtis is. One who thinks across disciplines and has creative ambitions, and someone who wants to contribute to a community. These are qualities we value as an institution, and the essay helps us imagine the kind of student he might be here at Hopkins. I largely agree with these comments. I think that it, I, I mean, I, I obviously like really like this essay. I think it definitely communicates the contradictions that he has as a person. One comment I will make that I think we could do better with this essay is the kind of first anecdote, the first two paragraphs about him playing the uh, saxophone and generating the polyphonic note really do are a little awkward and really don't sound as great as the rest of the essay do so i mean one thing that sticks to me is this like last few sentences of the intro story my instrument produced a strange noise with two notes my band director got very excited and explained hey you just played a polyphonic note i like it when accidents lead to discovering new ideas you know that last sentence sounds way too like thesis-y and sounds too like you're about to start a five paragraph essay it seems like a very jarring transition to just have that moment of dialogue the top of that paragraph talking about like the logistics of a saxophone and a piano. I mean, I think it's necessary, but it just sounds awkward and sounds disconnected. So I think, you know, the the top story could use some improvement, but it goes to show that even if you aren't, you know, the most smooth writer or whatever, like I think Curtis is a good writer given the stuff he did with the parallelism, but you know, even if you make writing mistakes or even if you have some fluency errors as long as you convey an overall idea of yourself that is strong an overall narrative of yourself that makes sense then i think that's more important than any stumbles of fluency that an admissions officer may or may not have all right moving on to our final essay of the first part of this podcast series that we'll be doing uh, is by rachel and it's titled learning how to play the first board game I ever played was Disney Princess Monopoly against my mother. It was a shocking experience. My otherwise loving and compassionate mother played to win. Though she patiently explained her strategies throughout the game, she refused to show me any mercy, accumulating one Monopoly after another, building house after house, after house hotel after hotel, and collecting all my money until I was bankrupt, despite my pleas and tears that I was her daughter and only five years old. I remembered clearly the pain I felt from losing, but I remained eager to play and determined to one day beat her. Eventually, we left the princesses behind and graduated to the regular, then the deluxe editions of Monopoly, and expanded to Roomba Cube. Every time we played, I carefully observed my mother's moves and habits while considering my own options. Over the years, she continued to beat me in both games, but the contest became more competitive and my losses more narrow. Finally, at 12, I won for the first time. 
at Rumikube, no less, a game at which she claimed to be undefeated. I felt an overwhelming sense of pride, which was only magnified when I saw the same emotion in my mother's face. I learned so much from these games beyond the obvious. I learned how to lose and win graciously. I learned how to enjoy the process, regardless of the outcome. I learned how to take cues from other people, but think on my own, both creatively and strategically. I learned how to cope with failure and turn it into a lesson. I learned that the true victory I learned that true victory stems from hard work and persistence. And I learned that the strongest and most meaningful relationships are not based on indulgence but on honesty and respect. This doesn't mean that losing doesn't sting. I was devastated when my hockey team lost the championship game by only one goal when I was the last one to control the puck. But I was still incredibly proud of my team's cohesiveness, the fluid effort we put into the season, and my own contribution. More importantly, the camaraderie and support of my teammates is ongoing and something I will always cherish more than a win. I didn't dwell over what could have been. Instead, I focused on what I was going to take with me into the next season. This past summer, I had my first substantive work experience interning at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, researching and writing about treatments and therapies. Working there was certainly not a game, but my strategy was the same. Work hard, remain focused, be mindful and respectful of those around me, deal with the inevitable curveballs, and take constructive criticism to heart, all in pursuit of a meaningful goal. At first, I found it intimidating, but I quickly found my footing. I worked hard, knowing that what I took away from the experience would be measured by what I put into it. I studied my coworkers, how they conducted themselves, how they interacted with each other, and how they approached their respective jobs. I carefully reviewed red lines on my writing assignments, tried not to get discouraged, and responded to the comments to present the more to present the material more effectively. I absorbed the stories relayed by Parkinson's patients regarding their struggles and was amazed at how empowered they felt by their part- participation in clinical trials. Through them, I discovered what it really means to fight to win. I've also come to understand that sometimes a game never ends but transforms causing goals to shift that may require an adjustment in strategy. My mother and I still regularly play games, and we play to win. However, the match is more balanced, and I've noticed my mother paying much more attention to my moves and habits, and even learning a few things from me. So I think this essay, what um, I think Dominic also mentioned in one of his comments about the previous essay, how it kind of ties together the beginning with about playing Monopoly, and also back at the end where she once again talks about playing with her mom, but how it's different from the beginning in that at the beginning she observed her mother and at the end it's more balanced as she said. So I think it's a good way to kind of tie the whole essay together. And I just want to say, I guess different from the other essays, I think this essay is a lot more straightforward. I don't think it... um like it doesn't use as much of a controlling metaphor like the wheel of fortune or the polyphonic notes but it is also effective in that it has a logical flow kind of extending from the games and then also relating to a specific thing that she did so i think it was effective in that aspect that i found her to be very straight to the point which i think this essay shows that even if you're not the most creative writer ever using these fancy big metaphors these fancy words you can still write a compelling essay if the words that you use do convey a story about yourself the one thing i noticed that 
was that these paragraphs are sometimes very long and sometimes very bulky. And we've read other essays that have very short paragraphs. My essay has 